For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Um, he was a, he was a good little Zen student with a great mind of bodhicitta, great enthusiasm for the Dharma. And there are many stories of him saying something to the Buddha, attempting to demonstrate understanding, and the Buddha. Gently correcting him and using that as a teaching mechanism. Korananda always being corrected. Here's one of them. Ananda says to the Buddha, and Buddha, spiritual friendship is half of practice. And he thinks he's so wise. And the Buddha says, not so, Venerable Ananda. Spiritual friendship is the entirety of practice. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit tonight about Kalyana Mitra, this word in Sanskrit that gets translated into spiritual friendship. Um, the word that we translate as spiritual, I think, also means um, Virtuous, something, something like that. So it has this overtone of friends in the Dharma who help us be the best people that we can be. Um, who help us live by the precepts, who help us stay close to our Buddha nature. Dogen has a little something about this. Um, and for those of you, a couple of you have heard this before, so forgive me. Uh, but in 1249, he gave a speech to uh, his own little group of Kalyanamitra uh, at his temple in Aheji. And he said, please cherish your skin, flesh, bones, and marrow. Knowing each other, intimate friends grow even more intimate. When someone asks the meaning of Bodhidharma coming from the West, from India to China, Bodhidharma faces the wall for nine years at the temple in Shaolin. Uh, so a, a, deep bow of gratitude to our Kalyanamitra Taigen for that translation. So I think this intimacy means non-separation. 
um, to me, it's a reminder that that there's no distance between me and you, between us and the cushions we're sitting on, between the cushions in Lake Michigan. We're all kind of smushed up together, right? We're not separate from each other. Um, and this can be a hard thing to handle, I think, sometimes. Realizing this intimacy, this way that we're all so deeply connected um, can be scary. And it's easier to put in that separation between us and the world around us, to create difference, to, uh, as Zingu Paul Visco says, a teaching of his that I love, um, to make two where there are two, but there's also only one. Um, so our practice is this practice of intimacy, of not making two, looking at this other person and saying, you are me, I am you. How do we work with that together? It's also important to practice this intimacy with ourselves. And partially this is zazen. To turn that light inside. To study the self and to forget the self in zazen. Uh, To return to this source of non-separation that we have. With all things, but also with the different parts of ourselves. Because when we hold something back, when we reserve part of ourselves and we're not fully intimate with what's going on inside or out, inside and out, then we split ourselves into two. And I think this practice of intimacy, devotion has been on my mind a lot lately. Um, And and really, I've started to come to see a great many things as acts of devotion. So rising to meet the moment to truly look at the person in front of you that you're interacting with. That's devotion to the Buddha nature of that person. It's devotion to this concept of Sangha, where we all are acting together and our sincere, wholehearted efforts in living in community, our devotion to the community, one of the three treasures. Whether they're Kalyanamitra 
whatever the frenemy version of that word is. It's kind of irrelevant. So I just got back from the Branching Streams conference. Those of you who aren't familiar, Branching Streams is a network of sanghas, uh, primarily in the US, but actually all over the world. Some in Europe, some in Australia, Canada, um, South America. who can trace the lineage of their teachers back to uh, Shogaku Shunryu, our um, first ancestor in America, Shogaku Shunryu Daiosho. So as a Sangha, this is our, this, these are our intimate friends. Uh, and it was wonderful because I had the opportunity to grow even more intimate, as Dogen says, with them. Um, this is something of an odd format. It was this concept called open spaces, which I think started in the tech industry. And we started each day with a giant grid on the wall that had our different time slots as columns and the different rooms we could meet in as rows and then the facilitator invited anyone who wanted to to come forward write a topic on a piece of paper and tape it at a time and a place and then whoever thought that sounded interesting showed up at that time at that place and the conversations that happened are what happened and this person didn't have to facilitate they didn't have to have an agenda for their topic. Uh, they just had to be interested. So what ended up happening was this expression of what felt urgent to people in their sangha, in their practice. And it was really interesting how the board really did fill up and everyone wished that there could be five of them to go to all of the sessions. But in a lot of ways, it was just the same handful of topics that kept, that kept getting brought up. I thought that was uh, interesting that every group you go to, we somehow ended up talking about how do we get more young people involved in Zen? We started talking about how do you train new leaders up uh, within small sanghas like this one or institutionally um, as, as a country, as the uh, SZBA, yeah, CBA. Uh, how do you navigate transitions in leadership in your own sangha? How do you pay for stuff? Uh, so this is what's on the mind of, of branching streams. Um, 
It's named after a line from the Harmony of Difference and Sameness, uh, one of Suzuki's favorite chants. Um, Spiritual source shines clear in the light, the branching streams flow on in the dark. And we're at the solstice and we're headed into the dark, the deep Chicago dark. Uh, but I feel very, very much not alone. This was a good reminder to me. Sometimes it can feel like, like we're this quote-unquote little Zendo in the Midwest, uh, a little provincial being so far from the Vatican in California. Um, which is not really true. We're doing fine. But this conference was a good reminder that really our Sangha is supported by all beings. And in a very real way by the actual people across the country who are doing exactly what we're doing in rooms exactly like this. Uh, some of them much more grander. Some of them much more modest. Uh, but everyone's sincerely, sincerely turning the wheel. Practicing for the sake of all beings. So I felt deeply supported by this. I felt that our Sangha was deeply supported by this. Um, it's difficult to transmit that feeling to you. I wrote um, I wrote a little poem. So they have at these branching streams events. Apparently, this is somewhat of a tradition. Something that they call the No Talent Show, which is a talent show with the word "no" in front of it. <laughs> and uh, they kept begging people for submissions, and and <laughs> and I didn't want to do it. Uh, but the the few days that we had together at this conference were so intense. And I only knew Douglas and Ruben going in. I didn't know anyone else there. I'd met Tova Green in passing. And I met these people Monday night. And by Tuesday morning, we were sitting in rooms crying with each other about the Dharma, about our lives, about how to fund our temples. Um, but the way that when everyone in the room is practicing this deep intimacy with themselves and this deep intimacy with the moment, you come to meet each other with your full self. That's very, very intense. Incredibly intense. Exhaustingly intense. The place where we were staying was a Catholic retreat uh, run by Sister Mary, um, directly on the ocean in Santa Cruz, which sounds tropical. It was, it was chilly and the water was frigid, but very pretty to look at. And as we're sitting zazen, you can hear these, these slow, ponderous, loud waves beating against the shore. Where I was sitting, 
in Zazen every morning and evening, I could see the ocean directly. In all the rooms where we were meeting, you could hear it constantly. At night, when we're sleeping, you fell asleep to it, you woke up to it. So I wrote a poem for the uh, No Talent Show. I'm going to read it. It's a little indulgent of me, but please, um, perhaps you'll permit me. I used to ask myself what kind of person I wanted to become. But lately I've learned to ask what I want to unmake myself into. I see the ceaseless churning waves and I admit I am intimidated. I admit I feel laid bare before them, these impersonal heartbeats of California. I admit I miss the still flat prairie with its tall, warm grasses, my small blue house, rubbing, rubbing eaves with our neighbors, my partner and his fretting. But I see the way the waves decline to wash away the beach, decline to wash away the land and ourselves. In this, I catch a glimpse of the way that the contiguous edges of every sacred thing create the scaffolding that holds up creation. I do not know what this means, but I know I am meant to see it. So I'd like to ask all of you um, to meet me right now. And maybe we can do a little sharing together. Um, and while I would love to hear from every single person here physically and online, please don't feel pressured to. What I would love to know is what feels most alive for you right now in your practice. And this can be something wonderful. This can be a difficulty, something terrible. It can be something that is neither good nor bad, but is an opening up inside of you. Um, but I, I would love to hear, hear about what's alive in your practice. So maybe we can just popcorn around, no need to stand on, on ceremony. Um, but Kalyanamitra, how are you today? Um, thank you um, for that talk. Thank you for your poem. Your poetry always inspires me. Um, as someone who had a um, uh, difficult childhood, um, being bullied and, and feeling alienated, the the concept of sangha has always been tricky for me, um, which has absolutely nothing to do with anyone in this room or the online Zendo or any being in the universe. It, um, uh, and, and being here and with my practice constantly reminds me to challenge that, that thought in my head and, and to push is the right word, um, but to be more open with myself than I, than I, would 
perhaps normally be, and how wonderful that is for everyone and for myself when I do that. Um, Sangha is not all warm, fuzzy feelings. Someone at the conference was referring to other people. He's like, well, we're not strangers, we're family. And I feel this, and this resonated with me. It clearly resonated with him. But he and I were talking to this other woman, and she felt very estranged by that. That she had a very complicated relationship with her family. And so having someone call her family was very difficult for her. So So it's interesting that you touch on family is like that's one of those words that to me is always a red flag. Like you're you get a new job and they're like, oh no, we don't want co-workers here, we're a family. And that's when they stab you directly in the back. And like I don't know, like I have a good relationship with some of my family. But like when I hear the word family, just it, it's all just complicated and like super complex and layers and layers of trauma and like decades of fighting. So like I like most people here more than my family. <laughs> I would spend time. I'm like, I've spent more time here this year than I have talking to anyone in my family. Um, but I think that that's from, from like beginning to end. That's a good thing because it's, it's sort of like, if you just meet someone and you immediately call them family, you're sort of skipping steps in developing a relationship with that person, right? Like, you know, may, maybe the next guy that I call family is, you know, ends up being a terrible human being and I just didn't pick up the red flags to find, you know, what, what that was. Um, but then again, it's been very rare that I've picked up red flags from people that are actually like devoted Zen practice. Like this is, this is kind of what we do to work on our red flags as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> like for, for me, Zen practice is trying to lower all of my red flags and all of my like overly hostile reactions to stuff and all of my opinions that don't necessarily serve anything good ever. You know, it's, well, it's meandering. Maybe you're trying to get create less distance between yourself and what's in front of you. Yeah. Right? Are these red flags like barriers that you put as the hostility or protection so you don't have to get so close? Maybe. It's certainly possible. I know I do this. Yeah. Thank you. Um, feels weird to turn the camera here. <laughs> uh, 
um, it, it, um, you were asking um, what feels alive in practice and it's kind of dealing with the undoing as you mentioned and origaming <laughs> that does feel very alive because we spend so much time working towards a goal and once you reach it you kind of see that the process is part of the goal and that's a little bit of a hard thing to deal with for me, but I'm also kind of like, okay, well, you, there's nothing you can do, right? And, and so I am starting to notice, notice some things that I really work hard towards are starting to undo themselves partially. And I feel like that I, I, with the goal, not, not physically, but metaphorically, it's kind of time to prepare the luggage <laughs> to go around those goals again and find the doors. And that always reconnects to me with, it's, it's nothing original, but you mentioned the, of course, the, the waves, the ocean, that, and that's kind of hypnotic, right? Like if you look long enough at that, you're like, ah, oh, okay, this is just the water breathing, but <laughs> I don't like that. And so that's, that's a noise and movement that's very dear to me, like you can get lost in that, and it's very relaxing, like focusing on the breath for a long, it's substantially the same rhythm. And, and, you know, the water, especially when it's salt water, corrodes and, and <laughs> takes away and then moves and rebuilds. So the part that feels very alive now is kind of facing some early signs of some undoing and we're like, okay, I see that that's the part of the wave that goes <laughs> goes back a bit and feels alive. So thank you for that image and reminding the undoing part. It's really, really important to deal with. It's wonderful. Thank you. People online as well, please feel free. Maddie's. And then Maddie, I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't call it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Sophia and I talk a lot about um, how when people talk about their practice, they tend to describe um, either something that's focused in the body or something that's more focused in the mind. And people, um, you know, we all have both a relationship to one and the other, but I feel like we end up in these trends where one or the other is really speaking to you or it's a struggle and, um, you know, both of those are, are linked. The struggle and the, the life-giving are always related. And mine is always in the body. So when I'm struggling to sit, it's always related to tension and you know, underlying body stuff that I carry with me. But thinking about family and like the family of, you know, limbs and organs and um, all of the aspects of ourselves that make up this delusion of the self or habit. Um, it's usually the things that we use the most that end up hurting the most, unless there's some kind of underlying trauma, a sudden, you know, jolt into a new pattern. It's usually related to overuse or compensation is a word that, that they use in a lot of therapy. Um, you're compensating in this direction to redirect some kind of pain. And because of that compensation, then you develop a new pathway. And that makes me think a lot about this idea of family and 
sometimes the closest relationships are the most complicated ones. Um, but also sometimes it's the lack of looking that becomes, you know, this, this other type of compensation that we don't, we don't have to look or we don't look often. So we don't have to feel that, like that distance, but they all seem related. And, and Zazen brings all those things because it's, it's the illusion of a neutral space. It's never neutral because we're always coming every time as ourselves and then witnessing the difference between this time and the last time. And that highlights where we're at when we sit. And maybe that has something to do with this, this oneness that's also always this two or this, this many that the, it's the interconnection that's the emptiness. It's both that will never close that gap and that also there's there's no closing to be done. It's it's distance is is what marks our connection, like you're saying. Thank you. I don't know what I'm going to say, but I, I've been, I think your question is so interesting. So I'm just, I'm like tempted to answer in like a totally different register, which is that I've been struggling sleeping a lot. And it made me, I was thinking about this and then you were just talking about the, the overuse question made me think about my relationship to my mind, which is always my, my inability to sleep is related to this perhaps overuse injury of, of using my brain all the time and these highly discursive modes. And I don't know, I've just been, I've been sitting with the fact that like times of deep creativity and openness also tend to correlate to like these really unhealthy feelings in my life too, where I can't sleep nearly as much. I neglect exercising, neglect zazen, neglect feeding myself vegetables and those kinds of things. And the kind of like the bothness of these, like there's a type of aliveness in one sense that feels really thrilling and important. And in times of creativity and excitement and parts of the practice feel really being fed while other parts of the practice feel like they're just like, being ignored um but i've been yeah just trying to sleep and failing to sleep has been allowing me to you know witness my conscious self in an interesting way albeit kind of horrifying and (laughs) scary because i want to sleep and things only get scarier in the in the night (laughs) but um but i don't know i had this feeling the other day of realizing that, like, I don't know, that the difference between me drifting and me not is this, like, kind of relentless assertion of my mind and its, like, sentences and its monologuing self that it that it's always habitually thinking that it is. And then there are these moments when, when I feel drifting off to sleep that I'm allowing I'm, I'm not being so 
so controlling with my, my consciousness isn't trying to control my body in the same way. I end up allowing other types of free association to happen and eventually I fall asleep. But I was just like sitting in that spot between wakefulness and sleep. And like, it's totally different from Zazen. And yet also felt like it's been teaching me something interesting about like how the conscious ego is different all the time. And we experience this state of consciousness differently all the time. Um, anyway, it's all over the place, but I'm not sleeping well. <laughs> <laughs> that has a big impact on your life. Not sleeping well. We don't, we don't sit, we don't practice just for brain reasons. We practice for body reasons. We practice for the, the non-separation between the body and the mind and the way that these make and unmake each other. Um, I'm sorry you're not sleeping well. Thank you. I know that could be miserable. <laughs> Thanks for a nice talk. Um, I think I just wanted to say that I used to have a very difficult relationship with my family for many, many years, many, many years, very difficult. And um, now I don't. And uh, I will never know the extent to which practice impacted that. Because, you know, you only have this one life, so I don't have the control of it. Um, but what's most alive for me right now in my practice really is when I get to sit and listen to the sounds of the world and um, just really appreciating how those sounds are not separate from me, but actually those sounds are me. And uh, I, I derive a lot of enjoyment from that, even sounds that I don't really want to be hearing. <laughs> yeah, my, partner has the TV on in the other room. Um, and I think um, just now, I think I've been noticing in a way that I hadn't noticed before how much more simple my life is than maybe it was, you know, a couple decades ago. And uh, I, don't, I don't know what I think about that, but that's what it is. Awesome. Is that simplicity even helpful for you? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I still have to get up and go to work every day. Mm. <laughs> Which the simplicity just doesn't give me a lot of energy to want to do. I'd really rather just, you know, sit here with the bird songs and airplanes. <laughs> Maybe you saved me two decades of trying <laughs> to solve it through simplicity. Thank you. <laughs> really overrated. <laughs> You 
that the Dharma seeds flower into a lotus, whether you want them to or not. <laughs> Big, ugly flower. <laughs> Elliot, John, Anastasia, Patrick, I hope you're doing well. It's good to see all of you. Thank you for your uh, talk uh, this evening and the question. Can you hear me okay? Mm -hmm. Yes. Great. <clears throat> um, my uh, practice lately has um, really uh, been sort of the motto is like is practicing with my hair on fire that classic um phrase and in not in uh intensity necessarily sense but in uh a constant being in the moment and practices in every moment sense um and i've integrated a lot more mindfulness into how I um, uh, disconnect from the day. Um, the easiest example is I, uh, I really like chocolate covered caramels with a little bit of sea salt on it. Um, and I would use that as a reward. And when I would eat that, I would disconnect from the day. I would separate from it rather than remaining in the moment and still enjoying uh, the caramel. Um, and so I've been really trying whether I'm on the cushion or since I'm not on the cushion all day, especially when I'm off the cushion, practicing every moment. And I, it used to be very paralyzing uh, for me, like, how do I do this? Um, and after rewatching a, uh, a movie I very much enjoy, it was, there is no try only do. So stop worrying about trying to practice every day and just do it. Um, there's no trying anymore. And it's really helped. It's, um, uh, very challenging, um, but it's allowed me to uh, really try to, to practice with more of an awareness all the time. Um, I don't always practice um, all the time, um, but at least like just trying to integrate it into the day. Um, so practicing with my hair on fire has been the the name of the game, trying to stay present, even in the difficult moments, um, not trying to escape, which is what uh, I do. Thank you. Um, and thank you for your sincere, sincere efforts. And it's good to hear your voice. I feel like it's been a while.
Elliot. Of late, I've, I've really found benefit in Zazen and my practice in the sense of familiarity and regularity and groundedness when many things in my life feel unfamiliar and ungrounded and having this space, this practice, this time container to return to a groundedness and familiarity has been uh, really important for me. Um, the past several weeks and continuing for the next week, I've been um, in the environment on the California coast, um, continuing a, a project, a creative project. I'm in an artist residency now um, that centers on grief. And it began with the, uh, the death of a mentor and continued through the death of a collaborator. And now I'm facing the grief surrounding the dissolution or the choice to dissolve a primary relationship in my life. Um, and so having, having Zazen as a, as a space to ground and the familiarity of the form has been really necessary for me in this time. Thank you. Zazen is good for nothing, but sometimes it really does help. I appreciate you sharing. So I'd like to share that my practice has been flowing, flowing with all of you, actually. You're always on my mind. I remember seeing Elliot maybe last week making an offering at his altar. And it was so beautiful before Zazen. I have been thinking of Maddie and Sophia and the intimacy of your wedding and our hearts with you of way, you know, by the ocean in Santa Cruz, near Santa Cruz. Adam and the struggles you've been with with Tygen and I and our relationship finding its way. Mike thinking of you as Tenzo, thinking, I don't meet with the Tenzo enough. <laughs> <laughs> and Asian offering her beautiful voice for our full moon ceremonies.
and the great Dharma, the Tamsaka Sutra, the Tenshin Roshi is sharing with my group that I meet with priests and friends. And it's just our glowing and flowing together. And I think, wow, it's pretty amazing. You know, I'm a little frightened about moving into this cutting teacher position, possibly. But I also feel so much gratitude and support from this sangha, from all of you. It just takes my breath away sometimes. So I'm trying to practice with that breathlessness and flow. So that's what's happening in my practice. So I want to thank all of you very much for that and for your bringing up this topic of intimacy. I'll just follow up on that briefly. Um, a lot of what Hogetsu just said, but the only that I could just echo that uh, I think of us families quite the right mode, but there's something about all of us and each of us, each person here and online that is precious and so I'm always kind of thinking how to take care of this, how to help. How to keep it going. So then, okay, so I guess it's safe. We've been having these deep discussions. So thank you for that. And thank you all for being here. It's, um, I feel like it's how I live. I definitely feel something moving in my practice, something very deep. I'm not sure what that is. And I'm a little bit frightened of it. And I think it's good. Um, I think it's good. Just devotion, devotion, devotion. So thank you, everyone.